Welcome to The Bloody Pit. I am Rod Barnett, and tonight I am joined by two people. One you've heard, you know, recently. The other you only hear about once a year because he lives too far away to speak to us more frequently. First up, our returning awesome guest, Troy. Hello, I'm Troy. Uh, that's That was that was not as enthusiastic as I'd hoped for. I'm Troy Gwynn. There you go, there you go. Feel, feel, feel as if you're, like, you know, doing a superhero, <laughs> yeah. superhero stand. Waves of applause. Waves, yeah, waves of, of applause. applause. And our uh, annual returning guest... Jason Spear. Hello, folks. How is it out on your coast, sir? Uh, I don't have a coast. Oh, damn. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm next to the the, the mountain range. Well, yeah. damn it, the, because the we're not we're not on a coast either. We were kind of hoping that you, we could say that you lived on the coast, and therefore we could. Oh, damn it. Oh well. I'm I'm in flyover country. Yeah, like we aren't. We live in Nashville. We can be in we can be in flyover country harder if someone came out and decided to build an airfield on each side of my house. Which, come to think of it, they kind of have. Well, I live close to the airport, so where we're at right now, I see planes passing overhead constantly. So, has there been anything of interest happening in your world, Jason? Uh, not really, no. Oh, well, okay. Well, that was easy. Well, that's the end of the show. <laughs> Goodbye, folks. <laughs> Bye, folks. Thanks. Damn, this was, uh, no, this was just, much uh, watching lots of movies, as usual. Ah, good. Cool, good. cool, cool. I understand that you've uh, ventured forth to see the new Godzilla film. I, I have ventured forth to see that, and uh, I, I rather enjoyed it. I, cool, good. I, good. I, mind, mind blown. I can't believe I've, I've seen now. We've gone from 98 to 2014 and now 2019. And, and I, I, there was something I finally really, really, truly good. enjoyed. That's so. good. Well, that's good because I knew, yeah, I knew you were, were lukewarm about the uh, 2014 one, uh, which I really liked. But I, I, I was glad. I'm glad to hear that you, you know, that they, they finally managed to make a film for you. And I have to ask you this. Did you actually finally have a good theater experience, theatrical experience? Because we all know that you kind of the magnet for uh, <laughs> awful, uh, awful theatrical experiences. Uh, yeah, there's stories I'll tell you later, but um, okay, yeah, yeah, this okay. this one went pretty pretty Did you okay. Kill somebody? Is this why some reason? Why <laughs> oh, we... Lord, there may have been a death involved. <laughs> Shit. 
Oh, you have no idea. Uh, <laughs> uh, yeah, it went fine. I saw it in IMAX. Uh, the only thing was, is I was in the very back of the theater, so I felt like I didn't quite get the full sound, but mm-hmm. I am not complaining about that because I'm sure I'll see it again and I'll sit in a better place. Cool, cool. See, I can't, oh. uh, I can't go for the IMAX thing. I just feel like the screen is actually too large and I can't really, I mean, I, I can't watch the movie without feeling like I'm missing something because I have to rotate my head to see everything. That's kind of what I'm thinking. I would, I'll, I'll, I'm not like tomorrow, uh, as of our recording of this, I'm going to go see it the, tomorrow and uh, where I'm not going to see it in the IMAX, but I imagine the second time, like, you know, after I've yeah. seen it that way, then I might go the second time. I might see it in the IMAX version, you know, after I've seen it once. But I, yeah, I kind of don't prefer to see it for the first time that way either. How do you feel about the IMAX thing? I'm assuming you really enjoy it. Um, You know, it was a free screening, and it was IMAX, so I'm not complaining, and I'm like, okay, I'll I'll see this. I'm not a huge fan of the, you know, the regular IMAX, the, you know, the commercial IMAX, not the one in the museums. It seems more, I know there's a differentiation Mm -hmm. between the two. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Um, It's okay. That's why I sat in the back, because like you, i Want to see the whole screen at the same time without having to move back my neck, you know, back and forth. And yeah, I don't like that as much. Um, but yeah, IMAX is okay, but I'm not paying twenty dollars for it. Yeah, so I'm good. Understood. Cool. Understood. Cool. I'm I, I'm kind of well, I'm kind of in the same mind also about uh, 3D. I checked out a 3D about five or six years ago when I was just like, why are, why are, why is anyone bothering with this shit anymore? <laughs> because we need to make some extra box office. This is a gimmick. We need to, to get on. Come on. Yeah. I, I'm going, going? I have the feeling that much in a much quieter fashion than me, because I made no secret of it. I think most of the American ticket buying public has checked out of the 3d thing as well. So, yeah, well, the spirit of William Castle lives on. So, <laughs> and that's not a bad thing. If you want to no. hook it, if you want to hook a vibrator up to my seat, we can talk. Oh, I'd be down for that. Let's yeah. see, let's see how that works. I mean, I guess that's what 4DX is. I, who, the, who the hell knows? Because I'll never yeah. experience yeah, it. Yeah, I say all these terms, and I've seen that. What is that? Because I see that. I have no idea what that what that is. But <laughs> uh, it's when. It's a, a chair that vibrates. Good lord! It really? Moves and it has sense. Oh like god. so, you can smell stuff, and if there's a rain scene, it will like spritz you, like you're at the Purdy <laughs> section. I guess this is real. This is a real thing, right? Yeah, this, I mean, this I've is seen real. that term. I've seen that term of it. I was wondering what what is this? <laughs> People pay for this? <laughs> yeah, I I almost went to go see uh, Fury, Mad Max Fury Road in that format, wow. but things didn't quite work out, so <laughs> I didn't. But I was like, I'll try it once. So does for the seat like? During that, does the, the seat, smell of the smell of burning gasoline gets? <laughs> I was going to say, does, does the well, seat, I, seat I spray you with chrome is. spray paint or something during yeah. that or what? Yeah, <laughs> you, you get the the cake spray. Uh, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Jesus Christ. Lord. Can I? Yeah, I mean, I mean, granted, I would love the opportunity to to to, to smell whatever scent Charlize Theron would have in any movie, but. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Well, I know Shin Godzilla in Japan had 4DX screenings, so I was like, "This, wow. like when the the initial thing, you know, yeah. was it Kamada-kun crawls up out of the ocean? Is there like a fish smell? How does that? Work? <laughs> yeah, I mean that would be appropriate, yeah. I suppose. But I mean, holy yeah. crap! Does your seat just weird. get a salami texture suddenly? All of a sudden, start to start to writhe underneath you. <laughs> yeah. Like later, do you smell charred bodies? Uh, yeah. Oh, oh, hey. Now, now we're getting into the realm of uh, yeah. an experience that I might enjoy one time or two. So, <laughs> what a weird experience that would be! Somebody charring steak just to get you that smell. Like, oh you guys, God. you guys both seen Kentucky Fried Movie, right? Yeah, 
Uh, it's been so long, I vaguely remember it. Do but yes. Great, do you know anything of the great sensor? It kind of. Oh, yeah. This oh, great yeah, segment yeah. of the guy who goes into the theater and the usher stands behind him and yeah. sort of helps him live the, you know, the. Uh, sits around kind of experience there. It's really hilarious. That's something I didn't think about talking about today. Oh, man. Kentucky Fried Movie. No, movie. <laughs> no, no, no. We're here to talk about a very yes. different film today, yes. folks. We're here to talk yes. about um, a film that I, I actually thought that this was a film that was a bit more divisive than uh, it turns out that it is. This is actually a very highly well-regarded film by a filmmaker that I've been meaning to eventually podcast about, but I've been putting it off because... Honestly, there's a difficulty for me in deciding, well, what juncture in his career do you, do you jump? Yeah. Unless you're just going to yeah. go chronological, how do you really, right, what's right. the best place do, to dive yeah, in? Yeah, do you do the, uh, the the Animal Trilogy that started off his directorial career? Do you start even before that and talk about some of the films that he had a hand in writing the screenplay for? Do you jump right into, like, your favorite? Or do you talk about the the the... The breakout films that uh, are are the kinds of ones that almost everyone would know at least by title if they've not ever seen it even. Or you just start at the end and work your way backwards so it becomes happier and the podcasts become happier and happier as they go. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, or do you do now? Here's an idea: we could have just taken the tack of going. Let's just review the shitty Argento films. Let's just talk about the bad ones. And it's like there's I, I, there's a there's a good five or six I think we get agree I think all three of us can come to the same uh, uh, the same agreement on which is that they're just these are crap let's just <laughs> let's let's do an entire podcast on Giallo. <laughs> I, you know I just like to pretend that Dario died in a plane crash about ninety six ninety seven. Everything after that is just kind of forgotten. It's like the Dylan thing when he when they when when he's there, you know, when people couldn't deal with the fact that that he was changing, metamorphosizing yet again, and so they just like, well, that car, that motorcycle wreck he had, he actually died in yeah, that wreck, yeah. and he got replaced by a CIA replaced him with a with a lookalike, and you know, <laughs> or you know, Paul McCartney died, or so McCartney, you know, yeah, you know. Yeah. <laughs> Hey Jude isn't really a Beatles song. Well, I mean, that's a good starting off point. It's something I was actually planning to save for the end of the show, but since we've already jumped into it, let's... Tonight, folks, we are going to be talking about opera, or terror at the opera, the the Argento film that, uh, depending on what country you're in, came out in either 1987 or 1989, and there's probably some places where it came out in 1988, who the hell knows, Mm -hmm. but it was essentially uh, Argento's last film of the 80s. And uh, by some people's estimates, um, they think it's his last good film. I disagree with that. I think uh, I think that there are a couple of good films after that, depending on how you look at it. But, Jason, let's start with you uh, as the person who's supposed to be on a coast and isn't. Um, mm-hmm. <laughs> just out of curiosity, where do you think the last Argento film of good, of really high quality, of, of unsurpassed artistic skill is? Uh, opera. <laughs> Really? Okay. Okay. Yeah, I, I, I enjoy Two Evil Eyes. Okay. I enjoy it, but it didn't feel like an Argento film when I initially saw it back. You know, when it first came out. Well, and it, is, it is very the, different. I mean, it's the first movie that he ever shot with sync sound. So yeah. Yeah, um, and it was also you know shot in the U.S. and that was, bef- I mean, he's done you know location shoots in the U.S., but it wasn't like the first like big American production. I right. want to say. Yeah. You know, like the Romero co-directed or Romero directed the other segment in the film, and it's good. It's not low quality by any means, but it doesn't quite have the artistic sheen that I liked from his earlier work. And then, um, like 
uh, Stendhal Syndrome and Trauma are both good movies. Yeah. But they they don't quite have the same oomph, the same uh, je ne sais quoi is a uh, opera and everything that kind of um, was before it. So that that's kind of and then I hate Phantom of the Opera. I try to revisit that film about every ten years, and I'm due for a revisit. But like last time I tried to watch it, I I hated it, and everything after that is just kind of uh, to me. There's not there's some good stuff like recently I watched uh, do like Hitchcock again, and it just seemed like a TV show episode, well, it, which it, I know it's, it's started movie, out as. You know? Yeah, it's a TV movie. It was shot for Italian television. But uh, I think that within that within those restrictions, that's a do you like Hitchcock is actually a pretty good little movie. It's not it doesn't stand up to the to his classics by any stretch. But yeah, yeah, I mean it was okay, but you know just it, it didn't live up to what I really enjoy. So I think opera is kind of the, the like there's three phases, and opera is like the end of the the classic era, like his run of what nine films from Bird to Opera. I mean to me that's just those that's untouchable and then you get two evil eyes trauma and stendhal syndrome and those are kind of good but they're kind of declining a little bit and then everything after that is kind of downhill from there some bottom bottoming out worse than others i kind of agree with you except uh i would actually draw the line with stendhal because i actually i i think stendhal syndrome is absolutely amazing and i'm I've I've been a huge fan of it ever since I saw it originally on a damn bootleg VHS tape back in the 90s. I think Stendhal is probably his last, in my opinion, his last great film. And actually, yeah, I, I, think, could, I could see that for sure. And the reason for that, and trauma's trauma's a weird one. Trauma he made right before that. And I think what's weird about Trauma is that it it was shot completely in the United States with an, an almost almost completely American cast, and therefore it's. It's very, very interesting, and it certainly has all of the things in place to be what it should have been, but it somehow kind of misses the mark, but I still am fascinated by it. And so uh, trauma is a, an interesting experiment that is worth seeing, and I think Stendhal Syndrome was like his last really brilliant kind of fireworks display before <clears throat> before Phantom of the Opera. <laughs> And, and then after that, I do, I did, I'll, I'll have to admit that uh, I, I will defend Sleepless because I do like Sleepless. I don't think it's completely successful, but I actually find it to be um, more successful than, say, Trauma. But uh, and, and I know a lot of people get upset by the uh, the endings of both Stendhal Syndrome and the ending of uh, of uh, Sleepless because uh, Max von Sydow's character, shall we say, doesn't make it all the way to the closing credits. And that that is something that I think upsets a lot of audiences with Sleepless. But I real I do like Sleepless quite a bit. And and I'll be honest, I I get a real kick out of Mother of Tears. I know everybody wants to bitch moan and complain, but that is as far as I'm willing to go because Giallo is an embarrassment. The card player is like watching paint dry, but paint dried, <laughs> paint drying with a really good cinematographer. I'll give him that. Mm-hmm. And uh, good God. Argento's well, Dracula. Well, this man, let's not even. Oh, let's Argento's not even, Dracula. Oh my God. Holy oh, God! Wow. wow. Now, can you imagine if the Argento of the seventies had made a Dracula? You know, that would have been something to get well, excited about. Well, can you oh, imagine? My. That's the thing is that in the nineties, the idea of the Argento of the seventies making family opera. Oh, that, what, we were excited about yeah, that too. Well, especially, we especially after seeing opera, which was you know, he's like, yeah. okay, we've seen what was something that was so obviously influenced. Right. So now he's taking on the real thing. This should be awesome. 
Uh, and it was not. <laughs> well, but, but it's interesting. It's good we're, we're talking about this. This is actually was one of the key questions that, that uh, I was going to get to, too, with you guys was just uh, my feeling about this film about opera was it does, does feel to me like the last film that feels like the Argento before oh, that, yeah. that like, and, and I do think a lot of that, and, and again, not the last film I enjoyed because I really do like Stendhal Syndrome, yeah. you know, and I do, I do enjoy things about, you know, I like trauma and I do, I do like, um, I do like, uh, the third mother, mother of tears. I do like, I do like that. I mean, it's, I, I, I certainly would not compare it to, well, it's nowhere near as good, but, as but I do, but I do like that. it more than the majority of people do. And I knew you did too, Rod, but I yeah. think that, the opera to me is the last one that feels like every frame and every everything is just so invested in, you know, that he's so the passion, the commitment to every single detail. And I do think a lot of it probably has to do with the budgets and technology and things that he faced and where he was doing his film in post opera. Uh, but it just felt like opera's the last one to me that just just feels in the hands of that master, you know, who's just in total control and is won't settle for any won't settle for any standard or, you know, any, any, every frame, you know, everything has to be thought out the camera angle, you know, what new way can I show this? What can I do? And what trick to, can yeah, I come up with? You know, and, and uh, to tell the story. Well, and, see, see if this theory that I've had okay. for a while and I've, I've, I've not seen anyone put this down on paper, at least mm -hmm. not that I've found, but it seems to me that yes, opera is kind of the end of an era for Argento. I think it's the end of an era because he kind of wanted it to be because Jason, as you've already pointed out, his next two films were shot in the United States. Mm -hmm. I think he wanted to do something different. At that point in time, he had his hand in producing a lot of other films. Mm -hmm. He was he started to produce films that uh, Michel Suave was directing, like uh, The Church and The Sect mm -hmm. and things like that. And so he was, you know, the the Demons films with Lamberto Bava, he he produced those with him, and he was really, you know, it was a close collaboration with these two guys. And so I think that at this point, I think that what Argento, I don't know whether he, I don't know whether anybody's ever asked him it, asked him this directly. But I think that he may have felt like he needed to shake himself up creatively. He needed to do something. And I think that going to his friend, you know, George Romero and saying, hey, let's let's do this Edgar Allan Poe thing that we've been kicking around for a long time. Mm -hmm. I think that that was him going, well, it's me only doing half a movie. So if it if we screw this up, we both take, you know, we both take the hit. Instead of just you know, instead of just one of us, you know, stretching out and doing something different, and therefore maybe mm -hmm. maybe failing on our own, and he had that support system of somebody of someone like Romero and, and the production company that he brings to it, and therefore having people in place that could help him get this thing made in America, and then in Trauma he's doing it again. He's like, okay, now it's a we're going to do it all in America. So I think that maybe Argento, because the reason opera is what it is, which is the end of an era, is that. He needed to challenge himself in a different way. He needed to put himself in a different place. And it's the same kind of thing I've heard different uh, different musicians talk about. I remember years oh, yeah. ago hearing uh, David Bowie talk about, you know, taking, you know, assembling a band and then taking them to a completely different city somewhere else to try, you know, to, to let them acclimate to some different place to try to give, you know, to try to put them off uh, off their game in a way that would get something fresh and interesting and strange out of them. And I suspect that that may be the artistic idea behind why he made a break. And I think it was probably conscious. I wouldn't argue with that. <laughs> and I do remember when Stendhal syndrome came out, I think it was in like Fangoria Cinefantastique. Fantastique. There was like a big quote from him saying, like fuck America. Uh, <laughs> I'm, I'm making Stendhal syndrome because I couldn't do that in America. And he just was, he seemed pretty bitter about not succeeding. 
and it sounds like he had some issues over here. Yeah, I think he probably did, and and that's why I, that's why I love Stendhal as much as I do is because it felt yeah. it feels very much as if if you had skipped those years and Stendhal's and somebody told you Stendhal syndrome was made say two years or three years after he made opera, it would be easy to see that. Yeah, for sure, and it also just has that more Italian aesthetic, like right down to the film grain with, yes, you know, mm-hmm, the, the film stock, I should say, mm-hmm. which, um, you know, trauma and two evil eyes don't have. Correct. Mm-hmm. Correct. And, uh, Rod, you brought up being the end of an era for Argento. And it's interesting cause, uh, I've listened, I actually, actually this whole week, I just dealt, went through all the extras on the Scorpion disc. And I think that really uh, the reason we chose opera to kind of begin, you know, talking about Argento probably was really because of this release. And so this three, yeah. this amazing new Scorpion release, we figured, well, we all want to watch this, this new release. So why don't we just use this as the place to start? So, uh, but one of the, there's two audio commentaries on it. And, um, one of them, and the name is not right in front of me. It's not Troy Howarth, but the other commentary, Nathaniel Thompson. Yes. Yes. He actually says that he thinks the film is the last crown jewel of, of Italian of the Italian golden age of of, uh, of genre cinema. So, what, what do you guys think of that statement? There, think that's valid? Maybe it's possibly uh, valid. Delamorte, Delamore. and he does mention that as being a, as yeah, that being was a really 19, good film. That was nineteen. Uh, that was a ninety. That was early nineties. Early nineties, like, like ninety three. I think. Yeah, mm-hmm. See, I, that's where I would put that. I, I would put if you're going to plant that flag. That's mm-hmm. the film that I would use. Mm-hmm. Um, you know that's that's that is a great film. that's that's Michele Suave's masterpiece. I mean, yeah. he he's uh, you, you plant that flag and you can fly it as high as you want. Mm. I think that film is sheer genius. But the problem is, and the reason why stating that a film that came out in '87 instead of the early '90s mm. might be a better choice, and why Delamorte Delamore mm. maybe <clears throat> is best seen as a film that. Was an aberration more than it, it was. was. A, it was a straggler as far as the Italian genre cinema goes. Yeah, yeah. Is that by 1990 the Italian cinema for the you know the Italian cinema was not going to ever be producing the volume that it was mm-hmm. ever again, mm-hmm. especially not these kinds of movies. The horror industry had dried up. What little what little juice was left in the tank was not going to be fueling very many films, and it was definitely not going to be uh, done in service of uh, thinking that the producers were going to be able to sell these films worldwide any longer. And that's uh, that's why <clears throat> I think that the the fact that you get something like Delamorte Delamore in the early 90s is damn near miraculous. I've, I'd, love to, I'd love to know where the money for that came from. But the, uh, and I'm sure there's some stories there, but at the same time, yeah, I'd say if, if, you, if you wanted to say that opera was the, the end of it, it's, 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 there's, a good, there's a good argument to be made. But the good news is, is that there were still some decent movies and some very interesting films being made mm-hmm. after that. It's just that, man, were they thin on the ground from there on. It sounds worse for me. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The, I mean... Yeah, as, as soon as you said that, I thought, no, yeah. Delamorte Delamore is where yeah. I've always kind of thought of that. That's kind being. of the last great, yeah. I mean, because. And there's the church. Yeah, and the church is good. I oh, like the, church the church is great. Right. Yeah, yeah. yeah. The, the, the church is fantastic. Uh, as, as a matter of fact, I think, um, and I, I get lost in this labyrinth of what one film is going to. Was the church originally supposed to be Demons 3, and they decided they changed their mind on that, I think? Yeah, during production. Yeah. Or when they were setting stuff up, they changed it. Which I think is better for it because the thing is, if you had tried to maintain the the rather 
let's just say psychotic flavor <laughs> of the the two demons films. Don't get me wrong, I love the oh, demons me too. films. Yeah. I think the demons one and demons two are absolutely joyous film experiences, but they are nonsensical. Oh, they're sure. they're ridiculous. They they almost go out of their way to not make sense. It's almost as if there are times the film is screaming at you, stop trying to make sense of us, goddammit. <laughs> and that's not really what they're going for in the church, and I think the church is a better film for it. it it's more laid back, meditative, but yeah. it's definitely like, don't try to make sense of this. Mm-hmm. But it's, it's, it's just, it's, don't it's, make sense. It's, it's, not, it's not maniac crazy like right. Demons films. It's like, we're not going to make sense, but we're going to be slow and beautiful and dreamlike, but we're not making sense. Yeah, this is this is a nightmare. The church is a nightmare, whereas the, the, the Demons films are some kind of drug-fueled, <laughs> maniacal, psychotic fit. Yeah. Or cocaine come down, I don't know. <laughs> Maybe, who the hell knows? See, those films really have a, a, a real dear-to-my-heart kind of... Uh, nostalgic feeling because they were remind me of this brief time I've probably talked I know I've talked on a podcast before when we're talking about the demons films yes when they actually some Italian films got shown in theaters here you know there was a theater that that, which is amazing I got to see I got I mean there was this theater in Bellevue here in in Nashville that uh, played I got to see uh, Fulci's Gates of Hell I got to see House by the Cemetery on it, and I got to see the two Demons films on on the and you know how those films made it to this theater, <laughs> but those were just such incredible experiences, you know, to watch these scenes. Those were just great. I'd usually go with friends on like a Wednesday night, and nobody else would be in the whole theater, you know, and just us, you know, sitting there watching these amazing films, you know, and, and just being blown away by people puking their guts out and all this. I'm, you so, know. I'm so impressed that you got to have that experience because, of course, I although I, I live in the Nashville area now, I did not grow yeah. up in the Nashville area, and so. Yeah. My chances to see those kind of things on the big screen were somewhere between zero and impossible. I've always wondered if there was somebody at that theater at that time who had to pull some sort of manager somehow, who managed who was a fran- fan of this stuff and, and managed to get this stuff in. Because yeah, yeah, so yeah, I have fond memories of those. Those the only the only film of that type I ever got to see, and I've told the story before, is I got to see Pieces on the big screen when it came out. And <laughs> that's pretty amazing. Nice. <laughs> I, well, I remember I lived in Connecticut. I grew up in Connecticut, and I remember like. Uh, Seven Doors of Death, Demons, I think House by the Cemetery, but I remember them all playing. Yeah. You know, regular multiplexes, especially Demons had a pretty good size release, I think. Yeah. Cool. So that stuff was all around. And I had to, I was too young and my parents were not having it as far as taking me to see a movie that says no one under 17 admitted. <laughs> and, uh, but as soon as it came out on video, I, of course, had to con some adults and that worked out well. <laughs> well, my favorite memories of uh, watching, uh, I believe it was uh, Gates of Hell, um, I think. It could have been one of the Demons movies, but I think it was Gates of Hell. But again, I was just me and one or two other guys in the whole theater watching it. And these kids kept crawling through the door sneaking into the theater i'm guessing they were probably the yeah they were young kids i'm guessing they probably belong like were the kids of one of the employees who was working there in this deserted theater these two boys like would would uh periodically would like you know you could hear you could see the door open and they would come crawling down the aisle like sinking there and of course then some hideous thing would happen and they'd go tearing back up the aisle and out the door again and yeah. jesus <laughs> 
I, I went with my friend to rent movies and his family got Top Gun and then we got to pick a horror movie. So, of course, it was like I was like, we have to get demons. This just came out. Let's yeah. get it. Yeah. So I had to go back to his place and suffer through Top Gun. And I was just like, is it's almost over. I want to watch demons. Let's go. <laughs> Top Gun. That was the that was the dividing line for me. Top Gun. That came out in 85. Right. Yeah. Top Gun for me was the moment in cinematic history when I, as a young lad, a, a teenager, I, I would t- I would remind you, where I realized, wow, these big, like huge hit summer movies, they can sometimes really suck dick. <laughs> I mean, this is garbage. I mean, <laughs> I was I was a teenager and was and and watched that movie and went. Wow, this is this is a screenplay somebody dug out of the 1940s. <laughs> this is the same fucking film you'd have seen in the 1940s. Only the love interest would have been the daughter of mm. the drill instructor instead of being the teacher, the drill instructor. Essentially, that's all. That's all they changed. That was it. And I just remember sitting there and thinking, "Fuck this movie." I mean, just <laughs> fuck this they movie. Should- should have been a blurb on the poster, Rod's Rod's comment. There. Well, I mean, well, but, but I will say that my my feelings about uh, the depths that American cinema could sink to, luckily, were buoyed just a few months later when I sat in a theater and had my brains blown against the back end of the theater by watching Blue Velvet. Oh <laughs> it's yeah. Like, yeah. Oh, okay. Hold on. Hold on. We're 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 back. We're back into a different dangerous area. Hold on. So before we dive more into opera, I just want to ask uh, you, Jason, what was your first, uh, what was your introduction to Argento, if you remember? Yeah, my my introduction was the, well, I kind of heard of him because I read Fango in like 85, so I saw the Demons article, Mm -hmm. but I didn't know who he was, and then I got the butchering of Argento article in Fang- the Fangoria with the Lost Boys on the summer yeah. uh, on the cover doing the uh, double sign the horns up yeah. <laughs> and as soon as I read that article I just made it my my task to mm. find these movies because they sounded really cool and as a teenager I just you know I ordered what Inferno uh, Cat of Nine Tales Bird with the Crystal Plumage Suspiria wasn't out yet. Uh, Demons, of course, I had seen before that. So technically, that's the like the first big Italian one I saw. Mm-hmm. But straight Argento, I think it was Deep Red because that was the most readily available. Okay. Oh, and was it the chopped down, shorter cut of it? Yeah, exactly. But I did get Inferno a couple years later. It was totally uncut on the the key video label. I think it was. So those were my first two, but and then I started getting into bootleg. But with opera, somebody was uh, kind enough. Uh, it was I think it was in '89 to give me a copy, a VHS copy off the Japanese Laserdisc. Oh, so I've kind of I've been watching opera for 30 years now and loving it. So it's kind of like the first Argento movie I got to experience in real time as far as waiting waiting for it to come out, getting a bootleg, know, yeah. then waiting until the regular VHS in 91, I think, came out from Southgate Entertainment. So it, it's kind of like opera is just the one, like I said, I experienced the whole thing in real time as far as the, the wait to get it, the bootlegging, mm-hmm. the is this uncut or not cut because I heard that the Italian version's cut, so – yeah, it's probably this one. Well, the uh, uh, and they and the audio commentators just uh, rave about that Japanese laser disc. So probably even your VHS bootleg of it probably was still looked great because uh, apparently, oh, yeah. apparently that laser disc just looks magnificent. 
Well, I can't imagine the film looking much better than it does on that the, the new Blu-ray. Well, yeah, it's, it's, it looks it's just, phenomenal. Yeah, I, it really I, does. I have I've always uh, my memories of seeing opera um, are kind of tainted because. I can't really. Once I've seen a better version of it, the, mm. my memories of the older, crappier-looking mm. versions kind of fall away. Except, you know, to know, okay, well, this this is definitely better than that. And so I can't. I, I can say that watching this uh, this print off this new Blu-ray was was wonderful because it's not like I was seeing a print that allowed me to uh, you know spot detail that I hadn't been able to see before. Because I think probably I'd also seen a bootleg from that laser disc. Yeah. Because boy, did I have a lot of bootlegs in the nineties. But um, <laughs> the uh, the fact that I can't remember where I first saw it is is not that big a shock. Because at a certain point, you're just drinking these things in as quickly as you can, and you're not really sure exactly where each one comes from. But uh, I should say for for the listeners out there. Um, we're not going to do a scene by scene breakdown of this movie. We're going to assume that you're fairly uh, well aware of opera as a film uh, and its story. And uh, I think that I, I know that I want to touch on a lot of different elements that take place within the structure of the story, but I don't necessarily care to go through uh, scene by scene because we'd be here all night because I know that I would at least spend about 15 to 20 minutes on just the scene where Daria Nicolodi gets a bullet through her head. <laughs> so uh, let's just say that if you are unaware of this film, uh, we're probably going to spoil gargantuan chunks of it, but it's going to be a random thing, so I can't warn you about any specific thing right now. Hello, and welcome to a commercial for Hello, This is the Doom Show. I'm Richard. I'm Brad. And on the podcast that is known as Hello, This is the Doom Show, we talk about Jalla movies, slasher movies, horror movies. We're going to interview Cary Grant live in the studio. We're going to interview Lucio Fulci in the studio, folks. We're going to put Cary Grant in the studio with Lucio Fulci. It's the interview you never thought would happen. I'm going to wear my Vincent Price slacks. I'm going to wear my Citizen Kane wristwatch and monocle. And now Brad is going to recite the Pledge of Allegiance in Portuguese. Brad, go. I don't have Portuguese. Go! Go! Stop hitting me! You're a natural actor. Yeah. Um, you can listen to us at hellodoomedshow.podomatic.com or you can find the archive at doomedmoviethon.com.
said, we're not going to go through a scene-by-scene -scene breakdown of the movie, but there are a number of, of things in the movie that I know that all three of us want to talk about. And so, just off the top of my head, the movie is visually dazzling from a number of perspectives. This new Blu-ray points out something that it, it, it might not have been evident to everyone who's seen the movie before, that this is a beautifully shot movie. I don't think there's a single shot in this movie that doesn't feel as if, as Troy was saying, there's a very careful eye being directed toward exactly how everything needs to and should look. Which is interesting when you start talking about how many times in the movie a lot of shots depend on fucking birds. <laughs> okay? Now, um, the inclusion of all of these birds, I'm sure, just made everything pure hell. And as a matter of fact, I thought that was interesting. One of the, the interview with Argento on the, on the disc where he's, he, they, they, there's that, that brief mention of, you know, how difficult was it, was it to work with all the birds? And, mm. and Argento makes a couple of comments and then just basically kind of nods and goes, yeah, it was really, it was really hard. It was probably mm. a bad idea to, to, to write these <laughs> damn birds in the movie. Well, it, it sounded like he had more of a difficult time working with the lead actress. Yeah, no kidding, man. Yeah, which is, I've always heard, and I, I'm, yeah. I'm sure there's a lot of stories involved there. What, in any of the extras, was there, was there more Well, everybody makes reference to it. Nobody really... Now, some of the some of the people, and and by the way, just amazing interviews on the uh, on the disc. I mean, the people they found tracked down to talk to uh, her, not being one of them. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, but no. and Argento is actually at this point they ask him about it, and he's 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 uh, he's, he's he's pretty diplomatic about it. Um, but they basically get the impression it was not just him uh, that had any that had a problem with it. It was apparently everybody, you know, apparently the whole crew and, and cast. I mean, there's a couple of the actors who say, I, you know, I just remember he's being a sweet person. I don't have any problem with it, but I think Argento and the crew are the ones who, who I think really butted heads with her, you know, and yeah. I think that she, you know, I think she was, uh, uh, it was an opera and so she was a diva, I think, you know, was basically the, the what was going on is, as it's the impression that you get. I will say she was quite a trooper and I think she, you know, I mean, she, they, she had to go through a lot of hell. Yeah, um, uh, it, it is funny to me in places where I can almost just picture Argento just kind of gleefully, <laughs> snigger, you know, like a you know, like taping needles to the to her. Well, eyes. well, just in the way I mean, when 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 the when she and the killer, you know, are kind of you know having their confrontations, and he's pretty rough with her, and the actor the actor pretty much said that Argento told him to go for it, you know, and then I think Argento was taking some pleasure out of the physical abuse that she was putting being put through, <laughs> apparently, but. Uh, but but yeah, they. Uh, uh, it does make you. It is interesting though that had they gotten along, it does make you wonder if he would have continued to work with her rather than start to to groom his daughter. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. You know, maybe maybe oh. to oh phrasing. Did the phrasing bother you there, Jason? <laughs> okay, the yes, the, the, yes. The, phr the phrasing was wrong there because <laughs> I don't think there's ever been any indication that there was anything uh, untoward between Dario and his daughter Aja, but. Um, Considering some of the scenes they've shot together, yeah, though, that's kind of yeah. why I went, ooh. <laughs> yeah. and, but there has never been any. Yeah, no, no. Well, hell, considering some of the scenes he shot of his ex-wife. Yeah, right. <laughs> Daria Nicolodi, including in this film. I mean, yeah. let's, you know, yeah. let's let's be clear. This is not a situation where uh, Dario is holding back on screen from something that he might or might not feel in his personal life. Yeah, and she apparently was, uh, Daria Nicolodi was not originally, I think, going to be in the film. Uh, they kind of yeah. called her in, I think, maybe even to replace somebody who was going to play that role, possibly. Uh, 
But uh, um, yeah, I think she was a little nervous about that that scene there. Is just wondering, hey, you know, they, there was a lot of water <laughs> under the bridge between those two there, and I think yeah, she by that by that time they were no longer <laughs> together. And I don't uh, everything I've ever read is that the the breakup between the two of them was not amicable. So uh, the fact that they were still willing to work together in '87 apparently was pretty surprising to a lot of people. So they do seem to have buried the hatchet to a large degree to the point where they're, you know, they're, you know, they're, mm-hmm. my God, their, their children are adults. So yeah. you know, there's, a, there's a certain point past which you just kind of have to give up that kind of ridiculous animus. If there's, if it's that far in the past, you just have to walk away from it. There's no, why, why hold a grudge? But at the same time, yeah, you're right. I do wonder if, uh, you know, because the, the role that this actress and we should probably say her name, um, uh, uh, Christina Marcialic. Mm-hmm. Is that how her Marcellic, last name is? Yeah, Marcellic. 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 Uh, yeah, thanks, she's, she is quite good in the film. I, I, I was, I was, all, I was very surprised to learn how much uh, difficulty Argento and some of the people working on the film had with her because she's quite good. And as a matter of fact, she does look a good deal like Aja Argento mm-hmm. uh, would look in the films that she made for her father. You know, just a few short years later, and so there's a very there's obviously a physical type that uh, Dario goes for for these lead female roles. One question I've always uh, I've always asked about this, but not necessarily out loud. So this will be the first time. Is that do you think? Well, let's put it this way: there's a common criticism of giallos in general, and I'm assuming that we would kind of roughly fit this film into the giallo genre am i wrong i would i would not say i would not say you're wrong okay well then if we're gonna if we're gonna say that that one of the common criticisms of the giallo is that um the murder set pieces are focused on the death of a woman and then it's not that's not always true that's that's not a hard fast rule that's why i backed off of my initial statement but they're predicated on doing violence sometimes graphic violence to a woman And so one of the ways in which uh, some criticism gets deflected is if the central heroic character or uh, investigating character or lead character who solves the murder is a woman. So you're able to deflect some of the criticism that you might get for, you know, essentially setting up a movie whose entire plot is built around the murder of other women. So what's the problem? <laughs> okay, I'm not saying we have that problem. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We don't care, but it's it's <laughs> a, it's, a, it's that point that uh, I think that even somebody like Brian De Palma got called on the carpet by a lot of people after Dress to Kill and various other films where he you know blow out things like that. Where the whole point of the movie is that there are these beautiful women being murdered uh, in often graphic ways on screen, and that is the point of the you know the the kind of action of the story. And so one way to get around that criticism or to, to kind of blunt it is to have the lead character be a woman. Of course, my, my favorite story there is that you have Brian De Palma taking all that on board and deciding, you know, fuck everybody. When he made Body Double, he actually has a physical giant drill being held between the murderer's legs <laughs> and shoving it into the body of a gorgeous woman as if to say to the critics, you know what? You're right. And fuck you. <laughs> fuck you. Fuck you. Fuck you. Well, you know, to answer your earlier question, Rod, yes, it's a yellow because there's black gloves in it. So, you know, why well, do we even yeah. need to ask that, that, that question? There? That's, but, a, that's a fine point. But yes. the thing about Argento is all of his female characters are have, have pretty well, always been well written and well, you thought out, you know, uh, 
multifaceted characters. You know, very rarely have has, has his female leads characters been. Well, know, I would, I would argue like against, idiots or anything. Yeah. You know, as far as in most of his best films, you know, they've been they they've not come off as, yeah. as yeah. I mean, they've they've actually come off as being pretty good characters. Well, there's and been some, resourceful and yes, intelligent. There's and, yeah. there's been some criticism of uh, the character of Betty in in this film as being not really all that likable, but I don't think she's really supposed to be really because one of the things about her character is that she's closed off in a lot of ways, and she kind of as the film goes on, she we learn to, more about that, yeah, and she learns and she kind of starts to come out of that 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 shell and kind of like become more you know she she's she's kind of distant detached and in a little ways kind of helpless you know as the film begins there you know but as it goes on she she toughens up and also kind of seems to come alive more you know which i think is in the is is it i think is important to the story i think it's intentional there yeah i think he wrote it that way i think Mm -hmm. you're right that he built the thing so that when you're introduced to the character she's thrust into the limelight Mm -hmm. by accident or at least what the film initially makes you believe Believes is by that, accident. Yeah, yeah. And so she's put put into this position of suddenly being, you know, front and center of this humongous production. And then as we learn more about her, she we, we learn just how messed up her background is. We start to get glimpses of those uh, those half forgotten memories from her childhood, which we eventually learn more about as the movie goes on. And so you learn just how screwed up she is as a person, and then how that kind of fuels not just what's wrong with her and why she seems so uh, withdrawn and unable to. I mean, th- th- this is a woman who's a, this is a woman who's an opera singer and can't enjoy sex. Something's wrong here. Something's <laughs> something's obviously wrong with this woman. And, and so, so the other characters tell her, like, "Hey, well, now, opera singers are always horny. What's wrong with you?" you know? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, they, they go, they go. The, the film goes out of its way to have multiple characters point out that you know this is this is not the norm. Well, doesn't she actually say she's frigid at one point? Yeah, she pretty much. Yeah, she tells uh, um, uh, William McNamara, the actor, yeah. uh, his character. Uh, you know, she just kind of says, "Sorry, I can't do. You know, can't do this. You know, I'm no good at this." To, yeah, yeah, she yeah. says, "I'm no good at this," and I'm thinking, "How do you? How? I, okay, just as an aside, how is a gorgeous, willing woman not good at sex? <laughs> I'm trying to figure out what she would have to do for the sex to be bad. I'm just, I'm, I'm just call uh, me crazy. Lay there." <laughs> I mean, if she's a cold fish, I mean, yeah. you can be gorgeous and be not good at sex. I mean, an enthusiastic partner is is part of the fun, is it not? I mean, unless I'm just, you're, I'm just you remembering, know, I'm remembering unless you're in a Joe D'Amato age. film. <laughs> I say, unless you're in a Joe D'Amato film. Uh, <laughs> okay, yeah, fair, fair point there. For fair point there, I'm just, I'm remembering how I was at that age, and if if you were just there and willing. I wasn't looking for all that much participation. I'm just thrilled. <laughs> well, yeah, but once you reach a certain point, I mean, and William McNamara's character, who knows? But I'm just, you know, <laughs> she's she's just not into it. <laughs> Which, if I could, if I could regress for a moment when you yeah. were talking about the, how could you regress from what we just talked about? <laughs> there is no regression. There's a regression from where we've gone to. So yes, please say yes, anything. Yes, say please, anything. Jason. Say whatever. I was just going to say, um, if you know you don't like Jalo because of the murder of the beautiful women, may I interest you in some Cheng Che or John Woo films so you could watch the murder of beautiful men? <laughs> Good point. Yes, I, right. I, w- I would direct you to this cinema over here if that's what you're looking. For. <laughs> if you just want to see males getting slaughtered by the, the thousands, yes. Yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, Good point. I understand to a degree the the. The feeling that an entire genre of film might be built around—I mean, because this was the, this was the same attack that was placed on the slasher, the slasher films of the '80s, which is the only reason the films exist—is to is to hack up, 
you know, naked women or naked boys or whatever. And it's like, that's not the only reason they exist, but that is, you know, part of the, the titula- that, that, that titillation factor. It adds to any kind of film of this type. You're talking about a thriller. The whole idea is to enthrall you, to give you something that you're not going to see somewhere else. The whole idea is to exploit the desires within the audience to see things that you don't see every day. And so to then uh, hoist them up and, and condemn them for the whole idea of what the movie is supposed to be in the first place has always seemed really ridiculous. I mean, I understand if, you, if, if your complaint is that uh, a particular film does it in an excessive way or does it in a way that you consider to be in bad taste. Those are arguments to be made. But to condemn an entire genre simply because the point of the genre is something that you find distasteful, yeah, that's, that's completely ridiculous. Well, there's plenty of ridiculous people out there. But the other thing, to look at the time in which these films were made, having some titillation in the product was kind of a necessity because a lot of these films were made at the time where pornography, you had to go to a porno theater and there were no VHS tapes. And people kind of went to some of the uh, sleazier movies because they didn't want to see full-blown porn. But you wanted to see some, you know, some... some, uh, Nudity in your regular movie. Well, let's talk about that for a second. Um, It had been a few years, several years actually, since I'd seen opera until just about a week ago. And I was really shocked to discover that the movie has no nudity in it. Oh, no, there's nudity. I just saw it go by my on my screen. What is it? What's the nudity? Uh, The woman is laying in the bed. Which uh, woman? Like the first time um, when the usher is killed. And he has the flashback. He goes up the circular staircase and there's a woman laying there and he pulls off the sheet and you fully see her nipple and just a bit of bush when oh. he pulls in her body when he, he pulls the sheet down. OK, OK. Wow. That's such a that's such a flash of nudity that I don't even remember it. And that would seem to. Well, what this points to is even it even backs up more. My point, which is that that seems like that would be eminently excisable, whereas the point in the film where I think there was going to initially be nudity and i think they shot in a way to to give you the definite information that these the two characters that you're looking at are naked but they were they shot it very artfully in a way so that there is no actual nudity that would have to be excised is the scene we were just talking about the quote unquote you know cold fish scene the the frigid scene where mm-hmm. it becomes evident that our main character can't even enjoy sex and it, it they're both nude but there's never a point at which even on like commercial television you'd have to edit away. And I found that really surprising considering how much nudity would would be in earlier Argento films. I'm sorry, I can't. It's not your fault. I'm a disaster in bed. I don't know why. I'm sorry. According to the legend, opera singers are incredibly horny. Uh, you know, really. They say they make love before they go out on stage and that way it's sort of... Relaxes their voice. You know, sweetens it up a little. Either I'm a lousy opera singer, or have I offended you? No. Well, I mean, I mean, now that you're famous, it seems like things are a bit different between us. No, don't say that. It's not true. What a place. It looks like a museum. It sort of is. I've got a rich uncle. It's his place. Um, He's stinking rich and he lets me use it whenever I need it. 
Want some tea? Yes, please. <laughs> All right, I've got uh, rose, jasmine, or mint. Jasmine. Jasmine, okay. Well, a lot of the uh, parts of the commentary and some of the cast interviews, they talk about the film as being very much... Uh, Kind of uh, haunted by the the kind of the specter of AIDS, you know, that during that period mm -hmm. there, you know, oh, where yeah. it was really a big fear, and that it, they feel like it's kind of intentionally reflected in the story uh, uh, because of the relationships and characters in the film, you know, that even the even the scenes between uh, the director of the the opera and his girlfriend yeah. are never are they're always like you know him him laying in bed reading fully clothed and her kind of hanging out next to him, you know, with other clothes on, you know, there's never yeah. like a real intimate that there's kind of like a lack of intimacy. Because it was the age of the real fear of a uh, fear of that, you know, of, of the the real the, that was kind of the height of the AIDS hysteria there, you know. The, well, I really like that scene with the two. Well, the, those two in bed together and talking because the whole point of the conversation between the two of them is that this woman has gone way out of her way and you know skipped a bunch of things that she could or should have been doing to be there for him on the the night of the opening of this this new show that he's doing and. He's kind of really not interested in her being there, and it seems evident. And I just always liked that scene because I thought the reason that the, they weren't in bed together or nude mm -hmm. or having some kind of romantic interlude mm -hmm. is that that was the point of the scene is that he's not he's not interested. The, these two people are in a relationship, but for him at least, it's really not what it used to be. And, it, and it, it's just another point along that, that whole track that the film seems to be suggesting, which is that there's just a lot of uh, you know, dead relationships in this movie. Mm -hmm. And um, it, it's, it's rather emotionally of a, of, of a piece within the structure of how all these characters interact with each other. Well, and there's also the, the killer's main motivation with her mother, it seemed mm -hmm. to be more of a S and M relationship. They really kind of, I mean, they kind of yeah. allude to yeah. sex, but most of it was based on, you know, sadism and cruelty as opposed to regular sex or, you know, whatever deviant sexual stuff they're up to. Yeah. Yeah. They, they kind of just shy away. It's even shot kind of, I mean, it's erotic, but it's a little, it's on the sterile side. Yeah. That's a good way to put it. Yeah. You're right. And there was some criticism of, uh, some some people had had a problem with the you know once you it's revealed who the killer is the age difference between he and Betty is people felt like it's not <laughs> what it should be considering that he was her mother's lover although we never really see what age he is when he was her mother's lover for all we know he might have been in his early teens we never actually see and that's how old very, he was. and that's a very smart thing I think that's why those those scenes are shot as kind of POV things mm -hmm. and so the, because the only uh, the real indicator. Um, well, the first of all, the real indicator of what that character's age is now, as the as the film is taking place, is you just look at him and it's like, well, is that guy in his mm. early or late thirties? I mean, how old is this guy? Because we have a definite sense of the age of the main character. She is what in her early twenties at the oldest. Easily, yeah, yeah, because yeah. They, they they make a big deal out of her being. You know, very young, and uh, they make note of the the, per the first person to actually play this role was 17 years old, and she's older than that, but, you know, not by much. And so we know her age is roughly that. So I don't think it's I, – I, I don't I do not think that the age I've heard that con, I've heard that mm -hmm, complaint before mm -hmm, about mm -hmm. the, the difference in age between the two of them. I'm like, no, it, yeah, it never really bothered, seems never to, really bothered me. It seems to add up pretty effectively, I think. All he has to be is, you know, really – 10 years older than her. And he's, I think he's clearly more than 10 years older than her. Yeah. So. 
Yeah, it's a bit of a discrepancy, but I'm not. It's it's movie it's movie math with age. So you know, you age someone down five years, you age someone else up ten years. Mm-hmm. It can be kind of wonky, but I'm willing to roll with it. You know, uh, one of the one of the uh, twists of the movie that I really enjoy is uh, the fact that through the film you get the sense that some something is watching her mm-hmm. through the grates, you know, in her in her room, yes. you know. Yes. And we've seen so many Phantom of the Opera versions and variations that you're naturally going to lead you, and and just Jallo in general, you're going to just naturally assume that she's being watched by the killer, that he's got to, and and when it turns out not to be that, that it actually turns out to be this little girl that that she lives in the apartment. I thought that was a great twist on that. On that, it's really wonderful, and I I really kind of like how there are little bits of information that are that are given to you throughout, uh, well, throughout any movie of this type. And some of those pieces of information are dropped into your ear so that they pay off later on so that you have this, you know, to hang your suspension of disbelief or your, your knowledge of how something's worked out later on. And I love the, the fact that at one point um, our main character explains we could scream our heads off and nobody would hear us because these, the walls in this building are three feet thick. And then once she's crawling through those vents, you're like, yeah, we can see they are. Holy shit. This building is old as fuck and they are three feet thick. And it's just, it's one of those few things. It's like, you didn't have to, you didn't have to have that line of dialogue in the film at all, but having it in there and then having it later on seeing, Oh yeah. Well, that's, that's not a, that she's not kidding. <laughs> that's true. I kind of, I kind of like that. With the girl through the vents, with that whole thing, uh, when I was watching it last night, and this is this is a stretch, but I was mm-hmm. kind of, considering the ending of the film. I kind of saw it is what if the girl was her like in her mind, if it was her when she was younger, oh. and her escaping through the vents was kind of her oh. just kind of going inwards to herself, and then from that point on to the end of the film is just her breakdown. So in other words, the girl nor her mom never really exists except maybe in Betty's mind. Is that what you're? Yeah, maybe, maybe the girl. Maybe the girl. I mean, the right, mother. Because we you have her. See, you see her earlier, right? But oh my gosh, yeah. nice, nice. That's a uh, that's that's an interesting. I've never heard that before. Jason, but that's that's not bad. Jason, yes. mind blown. Yeah, good man, uh, good stuff. I like that man. That's that that's that's very interesting because it does allow you to have a very. A very interesting and different read. Of course, the movie's not doesn't lead you in that direction, but then you have the you be able to just draw the parallel between the little girl being her and the abusive mother that the little girl has being her mother. Mm-hmm. Like I say, the, the, that that's that's a nice one to one. That's are there moments? You know, I feel like there's you know it's interesting because I, I think there may be moments in the film that are suggesting that we're suddenly entering into a different world in some way well, or when another. when she crawls and into the vent and the camera does that, that complete twist. 180 twist. Yeah. Maybe that's the way, yeah, exactly. yeah, maybe that would almost lead to what Jason's saying is maybe the camera's suddenly showing you that the world is just, you know, that just what you thought of as yeah. reality is just turned upside down. Upside down. And, and, and the whole, those old scenes where she's into the opera and she's walking through all those curtains and all those doors and then she comes out onto the stage and talks to the director and they've suddenly concocted this plan to catch the killer. By using the birds. Yeah. And it's just almost like bothering, you know, again, like the movie's leading you into the, this, like literally almost visually leading you into, hey, we're going into the third act now and we're actually walking onto the stage into the third act through all these curtains and doors. I mean, this it's just brilliant, brilliant uh, uh, filmmaking because of not only, you know, because of all the things you, you it leads you to think maybe this is what it's telling you. You know, the, 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 I, I, I first, 
thoughts of the shots of the pulsating brain, the occasional shots of the pulsating yes, brain. Yes, which I, 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 I do love them, but my initial reaction to that years ago was, what the fuck is that? Yeah, and, and it took me, of course, now I've like watched it three or four times recently because I've been going through the audio commentaries too, and, and, and I'd forgotten about it when I rewatched it this time. The first time around, it kind of struck me as odd, off-putting a little bit the first time around again, but then when repeating viewings, I, I started thinking that you almost at times wonder if it's, his brain or her brain? Is it right. the killer's brain or is it Betty's that we're exactly. seeing? You know, so yeah, I think that's kind of and, neat. and I and I would have to say that I did, to give credit where credit due. I was watching this. Uh, I Jason. I sometimes take the opportunity to uh, sit down and watch a movie that I'm prepping to do a podcast on. I take that opportunity to subject or <clears throat> show it to my uh, <laughs> to my poor poor benighted <laughs> girlfriend Beth, and um, she'd never seen opera. She's seen a couple of Argento films and really enjoyed them, but it's been things like Suspiria and Deep Red and things like that. And so we sit down and watch opera, and it's, she had the same reaction. She had the same reaction to, 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 to both the something that we'll discuss here in a few minutes, but also as soon as the pulsing brain came on screen, she went, what the hell is that? Mm -hmm. And I said, uh, I, I, at first I said, just roll with it. But the second time it appeared, she said, is that supposed to be the killer's brain? I thought I was being, I thought I was trying to be cute. And I said, maybe and she said is it her brain <laughs> and i and that's the first time that thought had ever crossed my mind <laughs> well, it, you were like i've been watching this film for 30 years for and, 30 I, never, never years thought and I never thought it's like wait a minute no wait that could be because all i've ever thought until yeah. the other night yeah. was no, no no that's that's supposed to be the killer's brain but then you have oh, all good. those you have all those instances in the movie where she's getting a headache. Yeah, and the camera's shaking at the same you know right. while yeah. it's showing her. And so it's, that's exact. And I don't know why those images never coalesced into me thinking that that's what that image was supposed to be. But that's something she immediately she immediately went, "Oh, is it supposed to be her?" That was her next guess, and it never. I never advanced to the <laughs> next guess until she did. With the whole her breakdown. Yeah. If you go with the the going in the vents, it also explains the killer, um, his crappy escape, yeah, his <laughs> nonsense escape with the dummy. <laughs> I'm glad you. I'm glad somebody can explain that. Unless you know that is one of the <laughs> implausibilities that you do have to the giallo implausibilities that you have to sort of wrestle with sometimes. Yeah, but. yeah, yeah. So my in my pulsing brain, maybe I was just making <laughs> up excuses for that. I was like, but, oh fuck, I have to figure out a way to make this make sense because <laughs> it's, how did they leave this in the film? <laughs> well, I do. Okay, well, let's let's jump to. I mean, <clears throat> once again, folks, we're we're assuming that you're aware of this film and that we're, mm. what we're about to talk about won't necessarily spoil anything. But let's talk about the ending. And let's jump to that. I do want to jump back. I have mm. a lot of other things sure, I yeah. want to talk about. But since we're already on the subject, let's talk about the fact that I have always understood why people would be upset and pissed off by that by the weirdness of the ending, with it becoming very clear. Because I've heard more than a few people go, "What was the point of her crawling through the grass?" At the, at the end of the film. Mm. And I've always thought it was obvious because from the first viewing, I always thought, well, she's snapped. She's crazy as hell now. She's gone. But mm. now thinking about the whole, you know, pulsing brain and her headaches and all of these problems that she's having throughout the movie that point toward her maybe already being crazy by the, you know, at the beginning of the movie, if we are to say run with Jason's theory <laughs> that once she climbs into the vent, we're in a different world or maybe even at a point before that. And that's just the point at which the film, you know, makes it obvious. Hey, look, we're, we're somewhere else now. That that's just be, her, her distorted perspective. Right, right, right. So is the, is the ending her crawling through the grass? 
is that her acknowledging, is that her accepting that she's crazy? And that's what I would read that as, is her accepting that she's not ever going to be right again. In other words, it's not a demonstration to the audience that the character has gone crazy. It's her acceptance of this. And it's the movie, this whole movie is kind of the, the journey of this woman getting to the point of accepting that she's crazy. Yeah, it works for me. Well, you know, actually, my final, or, or as, of, and maybe it'll change the next time I watch it, but as on the last time that I watched it, I kind of was left feeling that the ending was actually a little more positive than that. But I believe me, there were times when I, I totally thought, you know, that okay. this was indication that she's gone nuts. But I, that with her whole thing of just, you know, kind of shouting to the killer after he's being dragged away by 75 policemen with four, <laughs> 45 guns pointed, with guns at, his pointed face, at his head, yeah. which I just love. It just cracks me up every time I see it. But, that she's screaming, I'm not my mother, I'm not my mother, that actually it is kind of, now it's a very weird way to show it. It's a very Argento, bizarre, off-the-wall way to show it, but I actually did feel like she was actually kind of being free of the, being free of all the things that had, that had haunted her and kind of, you know, it kind of finally realized her sense of self and, you know, and, and, and yes, it is a strange way to show it, but I thought I didn't really read it as her ultimately being, you know, snapped, you know, going over the deep end. But, really? I, you know, on the last viewing, you know, there's some people who've speculated over the years that the last shot of, of uh, in Suspiria is an indication that the, the you know, that the the uh, protagonist of that has gone over the deep end. Oh, well, no. You know, I, that, because that, of the odd yeah. smile or because of the odd, you know, that's, that's not that's, the way I read that either, yeah, but I've no. heard people say that before. So so maybe the, maybe Argento, maybe there's a precedent to this. I don't know. And like I said, he may totally admit that she's, that she's gone crazy, but... I just sort of, you know, on the final viewing of it, I just kind of felt like that's not really where it's going. That it's just a very odd way of showing that she's kind of uh, more at peace now, you know. Yeah, well, we're using these technical terms like crazy, but <laughs> yeah, yeah, maybe, yeah, yeah. <laughs> maybe Bat she shit. is Bat accepted. Batshit is the term I would use. <laughs> oh, okay, yeah, batshit crazy. <laughs> maybe, maybe she is a, a um, just accepted her trauma and maybe what has happened to her or what you know, how it's maybe corrupted or changed her. And she's just kind of accepting of that. And she's not her mother, mm -hmm. but she's okay with her craziness, mm -hmm. which, you know, so she'll still be crazy, but she knows and <laughs> she's her, accepting hers. of it. So that's <laughs> her own special step. crazy. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Because I mean, that's the first step. That's the first step to getting better. Is yeah, that's right. You that's accept right. it, you mm -hmm. move on. It's mm -hmm. there. You know, you just got to deal with it. <laughs> As opposed to, uh, murdering people to try to uh, somehow mm. get your lover's daughter to uh, become have the same mm. predilection or predilections as uh, the mother, you know, now yeah. that's fucking crazy. <laughs> but now remember, he's not actually killing them; he's freeing their souls, right? That's what he said. Tells us, and then oh, and yeah, he's, he's, he's freeing their souls. Oh, we we all have yeah, our little right. excuses for right. why that's it's right. all right <laughs> to murder somebody. We've all been there. It's just it. <sighs> She's a bitch on heat. I mean, <laughs> that that dubbing. Oh man, yeah. Well, <laughs> well. I mean, here's the thing. The dubbing. I think it's a real. There are moments in the movie where the dubbing is really great. I mean, yes. there are moments when it's it's beautiful. As a matter of fact, there are moments when I'm I'm really kind of blown away by how effective it is. But I've never seen. Uh, a film, and this is definitely true when you get into the 80s, I've never seen a dubbed film from Italy of, you know, the exploitation variety, you know, horror film mm. or thriller or mm -hmm. anything like that, where you could get through an entire film without at least one or two moments where your ear kind of goes, plang, yeah. and you wonder, 
wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. I think there might have been an easier or better way to put that. But here's the thing. I watched this movie several times, and I got to admit, I think that this film was shot in English. So what we're seeing is, you know, actors speaking their lines in English, and then the dub being done later on is really just following the, the screenplay. So a lot of the things that I find to be uh, clunky in the dialogue has to be chalked up to it being in the screenplay. In other words, it's not a translation. It's the way it was intended. Did you watch the or listen to the con stub, the can stub? I did not. The, I saw it was on there. That's uh, but that's that. I did not uh, listen to that one. Because the was it uh, Urbano Barbone Barbini? Yeah, I think that's his name. Yeah, his his character, the police inspector, it is totally effeminate, <laughs> and it's just terrible to listen. It's like a effeminate British accent, and it's oh, it's no. awful. Oh. Oh, wow. And I, it was the first time I've heard it. You know, on this, I mm. on the special edition that just yeah. came out has it. Yeah, and it was the first time, and I was shocked how bad it was. And I am thankful they went back and redubbed it because the dub on the you know the regular cut that they did after it showed at that festival is ten times better than with his dialogue. I mean, it's night and day. Dubbing madness. <laughs> <laughs> well, the, some of the man the. The, the the crimes against cinema that were were done by some English dubs are uh, yeah my my brain starts to pulse let's put it that way <laughs> like, like that Peter Burke dubbing yeah well that's a good spot I'm also I'm, the one I always fall back to and it's a cliche but it's it was mentioned earlier the kid's voice in House by the Cemetery oh that is one of the worst <laughs> that is one of the yeah yeah the the uh, yeah, the whole thing like about the, yeah, the whole thing about the the you know the kids' voices had to be dubbed you know by adults you know yeah. in so many of these films, uh, but uh, boy that's that's one yeah that, oh, oh, oh that's one of the worst ever. It's, <laughs> the thing is, I mean, here's here's the beauty of it is that I I find it to be true that if you get through a dubbed film and you only once or twice or draw your your ear is drawn to an oddity in the dub. Then they did an excellent job. I mean, they really went above and beyond and did a great job. Because it's difficult, especially when you have characters on screen who are clearly speaking a different language. There's no way for the human mind to not know what they're looking at is artificial. So if you can fool me enough that I get caught up in the story and I don't care that much and I'm not, my, my brain doesn't you know kick it out and make me take notice of it often then you've done an excellent excellent job that's that's the best job you could possibly do now when you uh, now when you can come across one of those uh, uh, Hong Kong kung fu films that are dubbed by Australians that's a real that's a real treat man those are amazing Godzilla yeah Godzilla Godzilla is gonna, yeah <laughs> Oh, you, you have betrayed the ninja empire. Yeah, ninja, yeah. ninja empire. That's Emma Foster. That's Emma Foster's in fighting the ninjas. Oh my god! Oh, man. <laughs> well, my dear Betty, are we ready? Mara's unfortunate little accident is going to speed you towards your destiny. Tonight, you will make your debut in Verdi's Macbeth. Do I see tears? Tears of happiness, I hope. Don't tell me you're afraid. Afraid you'll fail? I'm too young for the role. Oh, Verdi's first lady, Macbeth, was only 17. <laughs> anyway, you know the opera by heart. I watched you at all rehearsals, working so hard, preparing yourself, as though, as though you were the star and not the understudy. 
Don't worry about the orchestra. They'll only need half an hour's rehearsal. Excellent. Come on, stop it. This is your big chance. I know. Think of your mother. Think how happy and proud she would have been to see you in a great opera following her career. And if people like you next year, you'll sing in New York and Salzburg. What happened to Mara? She got hit by a car. Or so I heard. Ah, you were listening to Brokotsky's recording of Macbeth. Did you know it was a production of ours? 1975. Yes. It's the opera. Macbeth brings bad luck. What are you talking about? Everyone says it. Macbeth brings bad luck. It's a great opera. But I would much rather make my debut in something else. Don't let Badini hear you say that. It's true. Shut up. So, you think this opera brings bad luck, huh? I don't know. It's what everyone says. Well, I don't say it. Look, you have a wonderful voice. You're very beautiful. And you're making your debut in a great theater. <laughs> you must make the most of this opportunity. It usually only happens to people in the movies, huh? Mm hmm Don't throw it away. So, Rod, Troy, this current, uh, what do you want to call it, Italian genre, Blu-ray boom, I mean, this is the best things have ever been. Yeah. How, how, since you've been in this game for so long, how, how has it affected how you've enjoyed the films and view them with the upgraded quality and how we used to view things on bootlegs and imported laser discs and such? Well... I always got joy from them because at the times I viewed them, that was the best we could do. I mean, you didn't really envision that things were going to get better. I mean, you were so excited to get a grainy yeah. cut version of, of something that you'd wanted to see and heard about for so long that, you know, without having that in perspective, I would never want to go back now, you know, and dig up my old bootleg VHS when I've got a beautiful, you know, letterboxed, you know, uh, Blu-ray of it now. Uh, but uh, but I think I, I can't, I, I don't know that, I mean, I think I watched those back then with the thrill of discovery and pleasure too, because you know that was that was that was the best I, as far as I knew, that was the best I was going to get. Um, I, I don't know if that's is that answering your question? Is that kind of to what I, you're yeah, looking for? Yeah, or, somewhat. yeah, somewhat. I'm kind of uh, kind of on the same tr same track as Troy to to a degree, but it, it seems to me that we were so thrilled to be able to see these things back when the only way to see them was you know the gray market, the you know, bootlegs tape trading, however you can get your hands on these damn things, these these legendary films that you can only read about. And when you finally got them, yeah, sometimes it was like you were watching it through, you know, the wrappings off of a fucking Egyptian mummy. But at least you were able to see the thing. You know, this thing, this this legendary thing that you've been reading about in fan magazines and hearing about mm -hmm. and and people have been saying, Oh, if you ever get the chance to see that, you're gonna it's gonna blow your mind. And so even if a film looked awful and the the night scenes were so dark you could not dope out what in the hell was happening that thrill of discovery was there but of course the joys now is that we finally came to a point where a lot of the people who were suffering through watching these movies on those dupey tapes were able to move into the the blu-ray production and the things the, first of all the dvd end of production and to mm -hmm. to actually know that we, we can get our hands on the actual prints of these movies. We can go back and we can remaster them and we can do this. And so, yeah, yeah, yeah. Right now, we thought we thought we had things good at the, the turn of the century with, with DVD, and we did. 
Don't get me wrong. I'm not looking back on, you know, the initial, like, say, DVD release by Anchor Bay of Opera and saying, uh, you know, that was that was a shitty, shitty thing. No, no, no. That was the uncut film, widescreen, and I think it may have had an extra or two. Dude, we were rolling in Clover then. <laughs> yes. It's just, it's just that now, you know, thank God we've got it in high def, and it's not enough to have a couple of extras. God damn it, we're going to have a raft of them. <laughs> We're going to have a huge set. It's going to be multiple discs. We might even throw in the goddamn soundtrack album. Here, we. in other words, we're to the point where the people who are producing these niche films for Blu-ray are the fans who wished this is what they could have bought 20 years ago. And so that's why they appeal so much to us. And, and how has it changed? I guess the question would be, how has it changed our reaction to seeing them? It's just made me happier. Yeah, that's, <laughs> that, that's it. I, I now know that um, with each new release of something, I'm never positive if this is as good as the movie's ever going to look because I think we've all had that uh, that feeling in the past where we've looked at something and thought, wow, this is as good as it's ever looked, and that part's accurate. But then the second part of the statement is, I can't imagine it looking better. Well, yeah, you can't imagine it now, but guess what? Now we have it in high definition. I wasn't thinking about high definition. I didn't even know what the fuck that would be. You know, when, you know, in 2002, I had no freaking clue. So, Really? No, 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 because nobody was producing those discs. It didn't uh, exist. So there was no way to see it that way. But now that we have, it's like, hey, you know, I've, they've, they've kind of screwed the pooch as far as I'm concerned about trying to shove 4K down our throats a little too quickly after Blu-ray. And I've just decided, you know, fuck you, I ain't following you down that path. But... One day, somebody's going to discover Opera or Suspiria or Deep Red or Cap, you know, any of these films. They're going to discover them for the first time on a 4K or a 20K or whatever the fuck the next <laughs> format may be. And that's going to be their initial introduction to these things. And their brains are going to be blown. Their minds are going to leak out of their ears the same way ours did. Now, here's one, here's one thing, and I, I wonder if it's kind of implied by your question, Jason. Yes. Yeah. Part of what made, and Troy said this himself, part of what made um, seeing these movies for the first time back in those days, the 80s and the 90s, so special was that we had to work our asses off to find them. There was no, and you know, hold on people, the old man's about to talk. There was no internet. There was no internet. There was no easy way to go to a website, punch a button, and two days later have that freaking thing in your hands. It just didn't exist. You had to you had to go to conventions. You had to be around smelly people. You had to drink bad beer. You had to have horrible sex with people that you didn't want to be around just to be able to get next to these videotapes, man. Wait, wait, what? Oh, wait. Sorry. No, that's 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 a different. Let's let's skip right over that. Move move on to the next. Oh, I don't want details. <laughs> I think both Troy and I have had sex that we with people we didn't want to have sex with just because we were at a convention because that's where the bootleg dealers set up tables and you have to go. Yeah. And then when you're there, you know, okay, <laughs> sure, why not? But you know, it's not everybody has to go through that now. Now you can stay celibate. <laughs> So what Troy is like a hand job, a Bandai figure, <laughs> and then an X plus is anal. Yeah. How does this work? 
<laughs> oh, I never really thought about that, Troy. I never really thought about the, what the I would do that, in those days. What you would do in those days for a Godzilla toy from Japan? <laughs> oh my God! What's the model what? kit? Oh yeah, sure. We could be. Yeah, sure. <laughs> what happens at Chattacon stays at Chattacon. <laughs> oh, Lord. Oh no. Oh, no. Way too much beer was drunk on those evenings. But nevertheless, yes, yeah. yes I do think that something to a degree has been lost about, you know, because you had to hunt these things down. You had to be such, you had to be... You had to be a fucking maniac. And I think you had to be invested, man. You had to be invested. You had to be so invested in seeing these things that you bent your mental energies in the direction of obtaining this stuff. And I think that now that's no longer necessary and that that is a missing part of what we think of as the fandom that we grew up with. But here's the thing. The people who are coming along now, the people who are, say, 20 years younger than us, they'll never experience that. So to them, it doesn't matter. What ex- what matters to them is what, in the final analysis, really matters to us, which is the film. Yes. And that's good. So what we're being nostalgic about mm-hmm. is kind of the equivalent of the, you know, I had to walk uphill both ways in the snow to school. You know, it's the same kind of idea. Is that what we're nostalgic for to a degree is the the hunt, mm-hmm. which doesn't really exist anymore. And so the person coming along who's just able to walk up and, you know, click onto a, a website, find all this stuff and just, you know, have his interest peaked and then start diving into it head first, he's never going to experience that. And that's not necessarily a bad thing. It, it really isn't. But it does, I hate to say, it makes us the old men going, back in my day, we watched this through mummy gauze, you know, and you know, it makes us sound like, you know, nostalgic prone assholes. <laughs> well, uh, my take on it, and uh, you kind of went somewhere I, I didn't mean to go. Oh, but well, when, that's right. When I was, <laughs> no, no, it was a good thing to hear, though. <laughs> so I don't disagree. But when... Now, when watching these on the new spiffy Blu-ray from whatever company, I've noticed that back back in the day when I was walking you know, <laughs> up the hill to go to the video store <laughs> to turn the tapes in the snowstorm, yeah. um, you would get bootlegs, and it was like the, the Fulci Gore films, Ricky O, cannibal movies. They were all movies in which the transgressive material I could easily see because they were big bursts of, of gore or violence right. or some trans, super transgressive material. But something more subtle like you know, Fulci's uh, The Psychic or Don't Torture a Duckling, those movies you know, I had on you know, crappy VHS bootlegs. But I didn't enjoy them quite in the same way because they were still cropped. They were like fourth generation VHS. But now seeing them on Blu-ray – they look fantastic, and there's so much more to appreciate the craftsmanship of the film mm-hmm. with the yeah. new Blu-ray releases. So it's it's kind of given a whole new life to a lot of these movies for me because before it was just at, you know at, after the gore and you know part of its maturing and such, but it's nicely coincided with the upgraded quality, so you can really see the artistry that was in these films. And I really think in, in the case of something like opera that. Was kind of came out when Argento's reputation in the states was, you know, gaining some steam. Mm-hmm. Is that 
when people saw the bootleg tapes back then, even if they were just circulating in Hollywood or the, that beautiful Japanese laser disc, is you couldn't maybe fully appreciate things without seeing it on the big screen or on a you know great Blu-ray. Is you you miss that artistry. And, yeah. and and also like a lot of the camera work now, mm-hmm. it, it's kind of missed because people younger people who watch it today are not are not going to appreciate you know all the you know when they have a crane or a steady cam or when they do a crazy shot, it, those shots are, are commonplace nowadays. Mm-hmm. So if mm-hmm. you saw opera you know in a good theater in a good format you know back thirty years ago you would be blown away by all that stuff. But now when younger people see it, it's just kind of, it's not as impressive because that stuff is commonplace. Yeah. And and that's one of the, that is one of the benefits of these new Blu-ray releases and the films being released in high definition format and, and in pristine copies and, and widescreen and all that is, is that it does, you are able to kind of, get a sense of what the film did look like in a theater uh, yeah. when it when it was first released, you know, and if you never got to see it in the theater, which most of these films we didn't, then then we sort of can can kind of recreate that in our heads, like know that this is sort of what how audiences first saw the film, you know, when the prints were brand new and they were being shown in theaters with 35 millimeter projectors and all that. And, have any of us, I know I haven't, have any of us ever been able to see this film on the big screen? I never have. Yeah. It's kind of my holy grail of Argento films. I've seen a lot of them on the big screen. Well, I've seen a handful on the big screen, but not this one. Yeah, yeah. I've uh, I have not. I would I would love to. I mean, it's, it's, uh, would, but uh, I didn't get to see it either. Yeah, now that I think of it, I've only ever seen Deep Red, Suspiria. Yeah, I think I've only ever seen those two on the big screen now that I think of it. I've seen, I've seen um, Bird with the Crystal Plumage. I've seen, what, four versions of Suspiria on the big screen. <laughs> Uh, Tenabre in Phenomena, yeah, yeah, lucky. You, you, and you saw and you saw Phenomena, not the not the chopped down version of it. It was the regular one. Cool. We had, um, recently Rod and I got to see uh, Suspiria uh, shown in a concert hall with uh, uh, Claudio Simonetti's Goblin performing the score live. Yeah, uh, nice. Film, which was fantastic, and yeah. it was it was the new it was that new 4K of of Suspiria, you know that that, that was released to theaters not too long ago that they were using, and uh, that was a great show. That was pretty awesome. That was a blast. Yeah. Fantastic. Yeah, that new restoration is is pretty great. Yeah, yeah. I was lucky enough to catch that in the theater. Mm. Happy Mind, I did. Mind bendingly beautiful. But yes, to, to get to get back to opera for a, for a second, there's I've mentioned uh, the the pulsing brain shots as being. One of the one of the two things in the movie that has always kind of puzzled me or taken me out of the movie in some bizarre way, as it does for a lot of people. But the other thing that always takes me out of this film is it's not the, not the first time that Argento did this, but it's definitely a film in which this particular addition to the soundtrack is problematic. Oh, uh-huh, right, we didn't talk about that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, let's 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 talk about the fact that uh, I don't care how you slice and dice it; those uh, injections of heavy metal onto the soundtrack are not good at least not in my estimation and i've made the uh, argument and i think i made it just to you last night uh, troy uh, that i understand what he was going for when he injects that bit of you know those chunks of music onto the soundtrack i get what he's aiming for but the problem is it's too jarring and i think that the only way to have fixed it is if he wanted to d- to use that music he needed to rip the vocals out well, I sort of feel that 
I mean, I I agree with you. I just I'm not crazy about the metal, uh, the heavy metal music. It's it's I think that at times it does sort of when everybody's kind of running and the music kicks in, it just does suddenly become like MTV video time, right. you know? Right. It, uh, I I guess it's it's all kind of part of the whole '80s thing by this point now, you know? I mean, like it. I guess it doesn't. Yeah, but but doesn't that bother is me as much as yeah, but it's, it's yeah. It's yeah. one of the only things in the movie that makes me think, oh, yeah, it was the fucking 80s. <laughs> sure. Yeah, yeah, you're right, because overall the film doesn't date very badly. No, 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 no it know, doesn't. It's, it's, it's it not, doesn't. Not, not even, not even it's the not fashion. Full of, it's not full of, right, it's not full of 80s fashions and hairstyles right. like what we see in so many films from that time. But, but yeah, that certainly reminds you that it's the 80s when you hear that music. Uh, what's your take on the music, Jason? I don't have an issue with it, but I've kind of learned that I saw this film at, uh, you know, the perfect age. And it's always just been opera to me. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it, it's kind of groomed me, so to speak. Mm-hmm. I'm just like, that's opera. I love metal at that age. Mm-hmm. So, of course, this is fine. I can see, I, I totally understand what you guys are saying. Mm-hmm. But I was at the perfect age when I first saw it. That it just stuck with me, and I'm okay with it. Mm-hmm. It's not the best metal, but it's it works in that scene because how else is that scene? It's just, it's opera. It's a, maybe not the best decision, but it's the <laughs> decision that was made. I love it regardless. That's what uh, bugs me kind of the most about it, going back and watching the film you know, repeatedly, is uh, the rest of the score is so oh, fucking mm-hmm. effective. Yeah, yeah. great music. It, it, it's, it's actually not that Argento really up until this point had ever had a problem with uh, with finding decent scores and, and actually marrying his images to some very intriguing music. I mean, good lord, we're you know, <laughs> go back to the the pinnacle in my opinion, which is Deep Red. But the joys of that in this film and in Phenomena, the film he made right before it, which is where he started this shit, <laughs> is it, 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 is where the, the the film just derails for a few seconds because. Like I say, I understand what he's going for, and the music itself isn't the problem. It's that as soon as someone comes in singing in this, you know, this, you know, heavy, this heavy metal voice, I'm just like, no, 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 that's not. Please stop, shut up, stop talking. So I, 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 uh, I uh, let a younger acquaintance borrow this movie, and when she returned it, the first thing she asked was, uh, "Do you have the metal songs on the soundtrack?" <laughs> well, hey. You know, if it works, it works for you. You know, it's just, yeah, but it's just when when someone's fleeing for their lives to the, to that music. You know, I just kind of expect at some point they're going to pass by. There's some Motley Crue lookalikes, you know, standing there, <laughs> standing there, air guitar. You know, yeah, exactly. Like, so. <laughs> it segues into I think it's a, the Bill Wyman song mm-hmm. afterwards. Yeah, yeah, and it it I almost feel it makes that more dreamlike and effective. Mm-hmm. Hmm. Just the contrast. I like the Bill Wyman music in there, and also I, 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 that's interesting. I hadn't thought about that, but I, I do, I do like that music that he contributed. Uh, okay. To well, another question I have is that uh, one of the one of the uh, criticisms leveled against this movie is a criticism that was leveled against Argento more than a few times, which I don't, I personally don't find any merit in it. But I can see why this movie might actually get somebody <laughs> to level this criticism against one of his movies, which is that sometimes. People say Argento was always just sacrificing story coherence or story cohesion for a dazzling visual. Now, 
this is a movie that goes out of its way to, su to supply you with some really intriguing and dazzling visuals. The biggest example of that being the, uh, you know, that ridiculously insane, you know, let's build a giant crane inside the <laughs> opera house and, and, have it, and have it mimic the bird's flight. A, a shot that nowadays would be done with a drone. Sure, yeah. You know, but back then they oh had to like gosh, pull the entire amazing. chandelier out of the place and build a crane that dangled down. And it's truly one of the most astonishing scenes from... You know, from an, from a horror movie, and I, I believe it's somewhere somebody they make mention of on uh, in this uh, Blu-ray set, this new edition somewhere that that's apparently George Romero's favorite scene ever of a film. He said there was a oh, really? sequence there, uh, but it's which I, it is just mind-boggling, you know, uh, a sequence there. But you're right, incredibly excessive. But it's the thing we love Argento yeah. for that he would put all this time and money expense into doing this. This shot, like because this, he, you know, because I think he knew, you know, I mean, he kind of says it too. He's like, he knew this was going to be the shot that people were going to remember mm -hmm. from this movie. Yeah. It's like yeah. if you can pull this off. This is going to be a showstopper, and it's going to be something that you know everybody walks out the door remembering and talking about. And the thing is, that's exactly the kind of thing that you can get criticized for if you feel that everything was leading up to giving you an excuse to do that shot. But I don't think that's true in this movie. I, I've seen some people try to make that case is that the only reason that we have this ridiculous idea of we'll release the birds and the birds will find the murderer. It's like, yeah, it is. Okay, yeah, yeah, it's a ridiculous idea. It's true. It's it's a ridiculous idea. First of all, the murderer's got to be there, and there's certainly no fucking guarantee that he will be. And then you've got to have an idea. You've got, you've got to buy into the idea that these birds are going to go attack the guy so. But he has earlier in the film attacked them, and so true, it's it's true. if you if you depends on buying to you know. Uh, actually, I didn't mind that as as too much. You know the the idea that they I thought that they could have set it up a little better by you never really get a good shot of the killer being in the audience among all the people. No, you know it shows a lot of the other characters you've seen throughout the film. Yeah, be there didn't really show him. I thought if at least shown him once or twice and established that he was there, I feel like that was kind of missed. In the payoff of that, you know, but I but I really didn't have a problem with the birds. Kind of, you know, I do think it's hilarious that they just swung this, you know, they swung the big, swung this cage, big cage through the glass in the middle of the opera there, just to, <laughs> in this thought that it, on this hopes that it might catch the killer. You know, uh, uh, I thought that was pretty pretty funny. But uh, talk, talk about your last oh, ditch attempts to find yeah. a murderer. Yeah. <laughs> Let's stick the well, birds it, on him. It's just as as nuts as the you know when four flies on gray velvet with the eye the cornea yeah, housing yeah. the last image that the victim saw and then in Kettle Nine Tales with the genetics you know someone's predisposed to murder yeah it, it's the same Argento it's, nonsense exactly and, 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 and I'm a total hypocrite because I will watch a big Hollywood blockbuster movie nowadays and just be like. Oh, you're just doing this because it looks pretty. It makes no goddamn sense. Mm. Yeah. Uh, Game of Thrones final or what the Battle of Winterfell, and uh, it just I, I'm a hypocrite because I'll nitpick that stuff. But when it comes to Argento, I'm just like <laughs> it's Argento. Yeah, whatever. I'm willing to roll with it. Yeah, like right. a lot of genre cinema. Well, that brings up a good question, and that's kind of where I wanted to go with this, which is, do you feel that way because you're predisposed to like these kind of films? Or do you feel this way because you saw these films and became a fan of these films when you were younger and therefore less experienced and therefore less likely to be cynical about the reasons why something's being done? True, but what is there? What cynical things? Like, how is it cynical as far as the shots you're talking about and the the wonky plot devices? Well, when you're a kid, 
This may be the first time you've seen this plot device, so it doesn't strike you as something that's cliched or over-obvious. But, mm -hmm. you know, 20 years later, you've seen 15 different movies use a variation on the same thing. It becomes, it becomes something that you're aware of as a trope. It's something that people use repeatedly in telling these stories, and therefore it starts to feel as if it's maybe artificial or just something that's used to get you from point A to point B instead of yeah. being a coherent piece of a story. All right, but it depends how it's done, and in in I don't know with when it when it comes to genre film, I'm, I'm much more willing to to go with it. Oh, me too, me and, too. Yeah. And I I don't know why big budget movies put me off more because I don't know they just don't engage me for the most part. But then if I really like a film and I feel it's doing everything right, I'm willing to take that leap. So it's kind of how my relationship with the film, how I approach it, and it approaches me, and if I'm willing to take that leap. In these films, you know, pet my head and scratch me behind the ear and coax me along, so I'm okay with it. Yeah, <laughs> that's that's a good way to put it. Yeah, exactly. There's there's something, and people are going to hear this, and and some people are going to immediately think I'm crazy, and others are going to get exactly what I'm saying. In a lot of ways, movies like opera, these Dario Argento thrillers, are comfort viewing. Mm. Oh, total. Yeah, I mean, yeah. for people. Like us, yes. Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah, and that's a little. That's going to be a little weird to some people's ears, but it's true because these are the things that we enjoy watching. Because for some, for somebody, com for some people, comfort viewing is God save us all. Some shitty fucking reality TV show that they turn their top, top Gun, or, to, or <laughs> yeah, yeah, or Top Gun, and and that's you know that's the thing that that allows them to relax and makes them feel good. And that's all. That's that's great. Good for them. But for us, it is you know hyper violent, over stylized, mm -hmm. ridiculous storylines <laughs> done with beautiful cinematography and insane soundtracks. That's what gets us going, right? Well, that and you know giant lizards stomping cities. But see, I think the key to this film, you know, the the key to this film, like getting a pass on just any of that, is it's all in the title, opera. You know, everything is heightened. What is an opera yeah. all about? You know, the emotions, the the, the yeah. staging, the action. Everything is is is. It's an operatic film. You know, everything is is excessive, and uh, I think it kind of gets its own pass by just the very fact of its own setting. There, I think you're now, right. It, well, for me, the key to this film is uh, the image of the needles under her eyes oh, is fantastic. Yeah. It, it's is fantastic a, yes. on all the key art. Mm. It's fantastic in the execution in the film. Mm -hmm. And that just roped me right in. Yeah, yeah, it's true. It's, it, it, it is an unfeggettable image. It really is. I mean, totally implausible for the most part. <coughs> oh, of but, course, but well, yeah, why not? Good. It looks yeah. great. Why not roll with it? Well, not only that, it's 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 an image that, while yes, of course, implausible. At the same time, it automatically, as soon as you see it, you know exactly why it's being done. You know why this person is done is doing this. Oh shit! This is th th this is someone being forced to see something. <laughs> Which is wonderful because it's 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 the little it's the little intellectual movie geek inside me that immediately goes it's the act of watching a film. <laughs> In other words, it's it's horrifying, but the very act forces you to see it. it Keeps you from turning away because you're in the movie theater. You know, it's just. I, it's, well, apparently, our general was motivated by the kind of like people always, you know, the people be turning away from horror films or saying that they couldn't watch his films at certain moments that they had to avert their eyes. You know, was was his whole inspiration for for doing that. And 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 and, and I have to say, whatever, however she was on the set, I don't know, but I've it, it's 
it's the number one thing that earns Christina Marcellic my respect. Yeah. Because those had to be hellish scenes to film, and it's it's fascinating the way that they went about doing the effect. But even though her her eyes were never <clears throat> really in the danger that it seems like they were, it still could not have been a pleasant uh, uh, thing to have been like made that. up as and had to experience for so long. And even even in just the when y'all get a when the two of you get a chance, definitely check out the uh, just the behind the scenes footage. Uh, there's a reel of behind the scenes footage on on the film that just shows a lot of these these scenes, and that's one of them where they show, you know, how they're doing the effect and what it goes, what she has to go through, and you can just tell it's it's just it's just absolutely uh, grueling. So, you know, she gets gets my respect just for going through that. Could have been an easy shoot. No, no, no. And I'm, I'm sure Argento probably by that point was stretching these scenes out as far as possible <laughs> to make her suffer, you know, as much as much as he could. Oh, <laughs> just having that close up photography on her eyes with all that mm-hmm. makeup on them. Mm-hmm. I mean, that can't be fun. No, no. Well, no. And from what I'm, from what I'm told about uh, what it takes to light a face to be uh-huh. the, the amount of light mm-hmm. it takes and how you can, you know, you can do it for too long and you end up hurting the person's eyes and they have to like keep their eyes closed for like hours and hours at a stretch just to be able to let the eye rest that that I'm assuming something like that probably came into play at times too. So yeah. and and you know what they did they then those are as I understood it those are real needles and the reason they were real needles is because what they did is they built extra like built like thicker eyelids on her bottom lid and they uh-huh. carefully made it where they made sure that she could close her eyes completely without mm-hmm. the needles you know touching with, her yeah. but the problem the reason they use real needles is they first were planning on using you know rubber needles and discovered that that was actually more dangerous because the rubber needles there's a the chance they might actually bend you know whereas the real needles are not going to bend you know and so that's why they actually used real you know wow <laughs> bend I, in the rubber needles might bend in and actually hit her eye eyeball so that's why they were actually real needles jeez <laughs> imagine the special effects guys working this out and um, realizing oh, yes. that they're going to have to go and tell this actress yeah. they're going to be real needles yeah <laughs> but you're, you're going to be fine yeah. trust us oh, yeah Oh my lord, that'd be terrible. Yeah. Well, at any rate, before before we wrap up, I would like to say well, there are always people wanting to make lists of you know favorite this and favorite that, and I'm no different. Does this does opera end up in anybody's top three or even top five Argento films? It's definitely in my top five. Um, boy, that's tough because top threes probably have to be top three would probably have to be Suspiria and Deep Red, um, and I do love Inferno and Tenebrae. Uh, too. So, uh, you know, opera, opera is definitely top five. Um, I'd have to probably yeah. watch them all again, close together to really assess the top, th- uh, you know, if it's, if it's, if it's the third best or not. What about you, Jason? Oh, it's right there because deep red, Suspiria, Inferno, Tenebrae, Phenomena, and then opera are right there. I guess if I, uh, depends on my mood, mm-hmm. but probably this in Phenomena are, interchangeable is for that number five and i do really love phenomena too so yeah so those are my those are my favorites depending on my mood and i did oh sorry i did have a quick question regarding uh ian charleston who plays the director in this film yeah right they keep calling him a sadist in the film but he seems like an such okay a nice guy. guy. I know exactly. Yeah. I, yeah, I don't. He seems like the nicest guy in the movie. He seems like the nicest well, character the whole time. Well, I think where some of that may come from is 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 understanding from what that there's a lot of speculation that he was kind of a meant as that Argento meant him as a little bit of a of a surrogate of Argento himself. That there's things that he does and says that 
and it you know that are supposed yeah. to, and it could be just the fact that Argento knew that people thought of him that way. A lot of people didn't understand what he was doing, or like thought that he was maybe sick, or had accused him before of being somewhat sadistic. Is yeah. the reason why there's those hints, even though the character not the way he plays him. Apparently, Ian Charleston does do some mannerisms that he picked up from Argento and purposely put into the character because he knew that Argento meant for him to kind of be a stand-in. Or uh, there's there's the parts in the film where he talks about that. Uh, you know that that that. Well, I mean, they they they, the, the they integrate him by saying that he's, yes. he's just a horror film director. Yes, yeah. so that's all those things. I think that could be where that comes from. I just thought that was interesting. Yeah. But Rod, your top five Argento films. Oh, it's a difficult it's a difficult list to make, and um, my fa- my favorite Argento film is always going to be Deep Red, probably followed by Suspiria, and then <sighs> it's tough. I dearly love Inferno for all its insanity. It but, is insane. But Tenebra is the is the film that I often think could be a really great starting point for people who kind of want to ease into it from the horror genre and, and and wonder what it's like, you know, because it's got horrific elements and it's got that standout let's chop the arm off <laughs> scene yeah. that sneaks up on you essentially. Mm-hmm. In other words, it's I think Tenebra is one of those great movies. It's it's a great film from beginning to end. It's it's tough to kind of do that like top three for me because the first two slots are they're they're deep red and Suspiria, but I start thinking about Inferno and I start thinking about Tenebra and I think about how much I enjoy Opera. Phenomena for me is 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 further down that list. I have to say. I mean, I, it's not that I don't like the film. It's that I think it's it's got problems in it that I don't think that keep it from well that keep it from working as well as I think it should at times. And some of that is the inappropriate metal that just gets, you know, needle dropped onto the soundtrack, it feels like. But, um, and also it's just kind of the weird randomness of some some elements of phenomena. I mean... Well, we, of course you play Motorhead when you're wheeling out a, a dead Donald Pleasance. Yeah, I know. And, 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 and also, I mean, you know, razor-wielding chimpanzee. I mean, yeah, wrong movie. But I mean, yeah, okay, sure. Why not? Throw it the fuck in. Why not? But... Top three, Deep Red, Suspiria, probably Tenebra, but maybe Inferno and maybe maybe Opera. So I don't know. <laughs> well, I top, have, okay. top five. Yeah, yeah, that would be the top five is easier because then I, you know, then I can just yeah. throw throw Opera and Tenebra on, on in, in, in there and then say number five is Inferno. And I know it's a, I know it's bizarre and it's fucked up and it's weird, but my God, it's gorgeous. <laughs> <laughs> I have a final question for you guys. Sure. If you go to the IMDb, which, as we know, is all uh, the uh, the bastion of truth and accuracy and all this, uh, if you look on Argento's list of films, it does list one film coming up for him. That oh, he's, yeah. Now, whether this film ever gets made, who knows? But it's starring Iggy Pop. Now, that in itself, I just want to know what do you what do you what do you guys are you guys at all intrigued, excited? Have you given up by this point? Or it's does the he, Sandman? Yes, the Sandman. The Sandman with Iggy Pop. And I think you know, in an Argento film, I feel like I should be excited about that. Um, we've been burned quite a lot here lately, but, but it was uh, 25 years ago. I would be. Yeah. So, so yeah. Do you kind of look at like, yeah, you know, you know, or, or Jason, what do you think? Oh, fuck. Well, I gave to that go, was it, that wasn't GoFundMe. It was, it wasn't Kickstarter. It was the other platform whose name. Did they do one of those? Did they do one of those for this film? Yeah. For Sandman. And this is like shit five years ago. Ah, fuck. And I gave like 20, dollars or thirty dollars or whatever just to you know get the thank you or something 
and uh, you know, nothing ever happened. Yeah. So I think it's. I yeah. don't think that's ever happening. Not happen. And I don't. Ex- I don't expect anything. Yeah. I was pretty much just like. Yeah. here's my money because you've given me an awful yeah. lot of pleasure and yeah. it, I feel like I've never contributed to the box office. So, yeah. but it, I don't think it's happening. And if, if it does happen, I, I don't have any hope that it's going to be a, a above average movie. Yeah. And it is, it is a shame to think of Dario Argento having to fan fund a, f- a film, but you know, it's, it's, well, it's that's, a sad, that's the uh, state we're in. I mean, yeah, it I, is, it is, I, I do not know how much money, <laughs> let me put that another way. I don't know how little money he had to make Dracula. Mm-hmm. But I know it was not much. No, no. And so, I mean, you just tell from the look of the film, the only production value the movie has is because you're able to film it on those, you know, locations that are fairly easy to come by because you're shooting in Europe. Yeah. And if that's got to be his swan song, then let's, uh, don't get me wrong. I, I, I always, always hold out hope. <laughs> I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm optimistic to the point of stupidity at times. And I, I kind of have to apologize for that because I always, I always remember, you know, it's possible. So, you know, filmmakers can pull out something and shock mm-hmm. you. Some, they can, they can come up with something and really surprise you. It's happened plenty of times where, you know, uh, a, f- a filmmaker late in their career suddenly shocks you and surprises you with something that you didn't think they had in them anymore. Problem is, I don't see how he's getting funding. If mm-hmm. if this is if this Kickstarter thing that you're talking about was that long ago, huh? You know, I guess that's not happening, huh? I, I don't think so. And it they sucks. stopped doing updates and such. So I think it's done. Yeah, yeah. that sucks. But yeah, I mean, yes, I, I would be but, excited. I would if he made it. I'd be excited to see it. I wouldn't expect you, it to be any good, but I'd be I'd yeah. be excited to see it. I don't know. After 1998, I had all the hope crushed out of me for people, you know, that have had past glories or they're coming from overseas to make it in the U.S. That I lost any hope of any of any of that ever working out. It's it's very it's very difficult, and it's and it's not getting easier year to year either because film film financing has always been a, a snake pit of hellish intensity and it's never going to get any better. So, yeah, it's kind of a shame because I feel like there's less there's like more films now, but I feel like there's less like foreign movies for me to sink my teeth into. Like that has all dried up for the most part. I mean, you get the Chinese stuff, but the mainland Chinese stuff is just not doing it for me. It just seems like that foreign foreign films are just is for genre stuff are just fewer and far between. Yeah, I'm not happy with the situation. We're lacking diversity in our foreign films. I think a lot of that boils down to what we used to see long ago was a combination of art house and grindhouse, and the grindhouse stuff doesn't get produced anymore. Yeah, well, even the art house stuff seems to have dried up somewhat. Well, as for what gets brought over here, yes, it's still made. It's just that they're 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 aware that trying to penetrate the the, the American audience, you know, the theatrical audience is just it's just not going to happen. So they're they're dialing things down so that they can make enough money off selling it to, you know, an Amazon or a Netflix a streaming yeah. service. So you know, in other words, they're aiming much lower as far as money is concerned than they used to simply because the, you know, the audience they know is just not there. Yeah. I mean, I, I just, I'm like, I kind of wish like all this stuff you're talking about that does go to Amazon or Netflix or VOD. It, there's so much of it now. Yeah. And some of it foreign, some, a lot of it domestic, but I wish there, there was a way, a good way to filter through it because there just seems to be so much shit that I, I don't have the time to go through it mm-hmm. to find the gems. Like I once did. And it seemed like it was easier 
back then, even though we have well, more communications now? It was easier back then because there were more people there were more people interested in mining that area and finding yeah. the gems and pointing them out. And now there's just yeah, it should be easier because my God, man, blogs and everything else, there's just there's a million different ways to find out about this stuff. The problem is there are so many outlets and so few people are sitting down and going through these movies consistently so that you can actually find, okay, well, this guy's recommendation of this film last time, mm-hmm. I, 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 he was right. I like this. And therefore, you, you can so that you can establish yeah. it. Because there became this thing where, say in the late 80s, if you read about some weird-ass damn movie in Psychotronic Magazine, you kind of had a feeling from what you read in Psychotronic Magazine about whether or not you wanted to seek it out or not. But now, my, my hope is that in 10, 20 years, people like that do emerge for this VOD you know, streaming boom that we're having now to kind of maybe pick apart and find the, the stuff that's worthwhile. Yeah. Yeah. Well, every now but, and then, though, something does break through. And not. And I'm not talking about a foreign film, but, I mean, I would. who knows if I would have ever seen Mandy if there hadn't been such a crush of people going, holy fuck, you've got to see this film. And, you know, I agree. I, once I saw it, I understood what they were talking about. Yeah, I'm, I'm glad I saw this movie. And this is definitely something that is worthy of attention and would have been worthy of attention if it came out, you know, 20 years ago. It's it's that kind of thing. But that one rose up because enough people started talking about it that it kind of broke through all the, the background noise of all these, you know, of, of 30 other films that made intrigue me just as much but who the hell knows I'm, I, I'm i'm not hearing about it you know i think that's part of the issue as you just nailed it is the background noise because yeah, now that i'm yeah. thinking about it like uh what is it the night comes for us the indonesian action movie on netflix that came out well in the fall, I've heard, fall. I've, heard, I've heard of it but i've still not watched it yeah it is a fantastic murder-a-thon and uh, I would highly recommend you guys check it out just for the, cool. the martial arts action combined. Yeah. It's it's like a combination almost of like a midpoint between the raid and Rikio, maybe a little bit more on the raid. <laughs> but there's just tons of gore and craziness. Yeah. But it's okay, so overshadowed fine. by other – like so many other films and noises about films and yeah. just – you can't filter it out. And I, you know, I almost forgot about it. I'm like, that's a great movie. You know, that's a real fun movie. The years ago, I would have been bonkers over. Oh, well, here's, here's it, a perfect When I watch example. it on TV, you know, or streaming, I'm like, oh, I'll watch this tonight. It doesn't seem as special or make an impression on me as if I went to the theater to see it. Yes. Here's a good example. Uh, my girlfriend has expressed interest in seeing Train to Busan. Oh, that's a good one. And it's a yeah. great movie. Yeah. I yeah. saw it. I saw it like, yeah. t- what, now three years ago? And it's fantastic. Yeah. But that level of filmmaking, Train to Busan, is so good that if this were 20 years ago, that movie would be the talk of every genre nutcase yeah. gore yeah. hound True. for a year or two. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, I still haven't gotten around. She's curious about it and wants to see it. And I still haven't made the time to show the damn thing to her. Let's get on that. Come on. I, get, I will. What I kind will. of boyfriend are you? I'm, I'm a loser. I know. She wants to see it, and she's she's brought it up more than once, so I'm, I'm failing. I know. Don't unpack in, you know, in the new house. Just show her that movie. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes. yes. Yes, I have my orders. Thank you, Jason. Yes, 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 sir. <laughs> Priorities, man. <laughs> Priorities. All right, man. Well, Jason, I want to thank you again for joining us for this conversation about Dario Argento's opera. Thank you for having me. It was a great time. Yeah. We need to do this more often than once a year. I think we probably ought to try to sit down and actually have a conversation about Godzilla movies again sometime soon. 
Yeah, that would be great. Hit me up whenever. Yeah. Maybe later this summer? Yeah. Yeah. Sure, fun. sure thing. Put me down for it. Cool. All right. All right. Well, I am Rod Barnett. I'm Troy Gwynn. Bye, guys. Jeez. Bye. <laughs>
we've all seen the movie, right? There's a moment in the movie where all he has to show you, and I don't know why he needed the shot, but all he needs to show you are people getting out of a train. Yes, yes, exactly. And it's a shitty shot. It's so badly done <laughs> that the, any rational human being would have looked at the shot and gone, well, throw that the fuck out. We'll mm-hmm. just paper over this with some dialogue and move on. Because this is garbage. CGI train onto the apple cart and then going into the building. (laughs) Fucking bad. It does. It it would not fool a five-year-old. It's awful. And then there are other sections of the film where they're shooting on real locations that look good, and and you're going. So you thought that shitty fucking CGI train Mm -hmm. that doesn't exist was necessary? And you're juxtaposing it with an actual no-shit fucking Italian castle. <laughs> and you can't see why those two images in the same movie rubbing up against each other are going to cause your audience to just freak the fuck out. <laughs> oh, Jesus Christ. <laughs> oh, man. Well, okay, so we are off and running again here with oh. the next segment. And, uh, and, and, uh, <laughs> yeah, okay, and, hold and, on. And, let's, yes. let's, let's reset. Okay. <laughs> Do you, want, do you need to take some some uh, blood pressure meds or anything? Are you good? <laughs> no, no, no. I do. I do. I do that later on. It's called booze. <laughs> oh, okay. 